tres, cuatro. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week, a classic album dissection of Three Feet High and Rising, the debut album by De La Soul. It's an album that helped define hip-hop's golden age, and yet it's unavailable to stream or download on digital platforms. We'll talk about the making of the album, its importance, and why this classic is so hard to hear today. Plus, we review the latest album from The National. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll review the eighth album from The National, I Am Easy to Find. But first, we want to talk about a classic album that is not easy to find. De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising. That's right, Jim. And a big part of the reason why this album is unavailable is one oddball sample on one 66-second track called Transmitting Live from Mars. Écoutez, à midi. Quelle heure est-il Il est midi. C'est l'heure de déjeuner. Qu'est-ce qu'il y a à manger Les saucisses. Greg, one of our favorite recurring segments on Sound Opinions is the classic album dissection, where we dig deep into a record that we've been living with for years that we think is an absolute masterpiece. We've been talking about doing this record, the debut album by De La Soul, Three Feet High and Rising, for a long time. I should uh, uh, tell you right now that there are many great stories connected to the making of this album. One of the difficulties you, the listener at home, may have is it is not streaming. You cannot purchase it as a digital download. You can buy the CD on the Amazon.com, but this record is hard to find. Mm-hmm. You got to go crate digging and look for the vinyl. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really tragic, and I think it speaks to that particular era of hip-hop. What we are catching here, uh, this album came out in 1989, Three Feet High and Rising by Della Soul. Um, three kids from Long Island with another kid from Long Island who was a little bit older, Prince Paul, the producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people talk about this with reverence, uh, this period in hip-hop, the golden age of hip hop, I've heard yeah. that referred to more than once. Oh, and not uh, just not just people. The likes of Chuck D, uh, you well, know, uh, Africa Bombada. Uh, everybody pays homage to this record. As a music fan, I, it was an incredible time. I remember collecting the first twelve-inch singles from hip hop in the late seventies, early eighties, and thinking this is incredible stuff. It reminded me a lot of punk rock. What we saw was a rapid evolution of hip hop in the next five years. into a more sophisticated art form based on sampling. It's important to note that the idea of sampling 
uh, it was still a relatively new art form, and you started to see producers working with this idea of pulling little bits and pieces of music from a huge variety of recordings, recontextualizing them and making them into something new. So when you think about something like Public Enemies, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, or Ultramagnetic MC's Critical Beatdown, or the Jungle Brothers was straight out of the jungle. Or, or um, Beastie Boys, Paul's Beastie Boys, Boutique. Paul's Boutique, which came out right around the same time. They were just wrapping up the Beasties, Paul's mm-hmm. Boutique, when they first heard De, De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising. It almost said, like, why are we going to bother yeah, to finish this? Yeah, their 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 whole uh, reaction was, we're, we're, our record isn't good enough. It doesn't right. match up to this one. So this record was held in high reverence because it was an artful hip-hop record. It was self-consciously artful in the way it used these samples and the way it put these samples together. So what we saw was a flowering of this art form with three feet high and rising at the very center of it. The whole discussion about hip-hop seemed to change back then. It was this upstart music that wasn't going to last to something that had real staying power, that had a sense of these records are going to be played 50 years from now and people are going to respect them. But as you said, because of the way sampling has been viewed legally, that whole idea is thrown into question. There's a large issue here. Can a record like Three Feet High and Rising even be made anymore well, we'll today get to, because we'll, of the copyright We'll get laws. to the whole sample controversy, but let's introduce these fellas first. Um, they all came from around the town of Amityville, home of the Amityville Horror on Long yeah. Island. You remember that? Yep. You know, Prince Paul, uh, real name uh, Paul Houston, is a DJ for an influential uh, hip-hop group, Stetsasonic. Mm-hmm. He's producer, he's the DJ, he's one of the driving forces. I got a Sally, and she don't squall or eat pork with a spoon or fork, but I heard that. And then he meets through a mutual middle school music teacher, Pacemaster Mace, Vincent Lamont Mason, who's going to become the uh, DJ for De La Soul. Uh, he begins, Mace, working with Stetsasonic and then introduces Paul to his pals. We have Trugoy the Dove, David Jude Jolicoeur. My name happens to be Trugoy the Dove. Trugoy is yogurt backwards. Yogurt, I enjoy to eat yogurt. I mean, I eat it a lot. And uh, Pazdnus, Kelvin Mercer. I'm Pazdnus. You can call me Paz. Paz is backwards for sop, and Danus is backwards for sound. Sop, sound. If you're getting a sense of high school playfulness here, Mm -hmm. I'm glad. These kids were all in high school. Paul said, I met them. They were nerds. I was a nerd. We were all nerds. Paul's a little bit older. He had accomplished a lot with Stetsasonic, a lot being relative. Hip-hop was being born. He'd made an impact in this small but burgeoning music scene. They record a single, essentially on a a cassette in the basement, Plug Tunin, and it winds up in the hands of several labels who begin fighting for it. Any 
of the service. Prerogative praise positively, I'm acquitted. Enemies publicly shame my utility. After the battle, then riches, I'm with it. Simply sue, well moved. Final like rule, transistors are never more shown with life. When vocal flow brings it all down in ruins. Due to a clue of a naughty noise called platoon. Uh, De La Soul, in a decision that will have ramifications, decide to sign with Tommy Boy, small but extremely hip label on the hip-hop scene at that point in the late 80s, uh, mainly because uh, Tommy Boy showed the most enthusiasm for them. But business-wise, they didn't quite have their act together. These guys uh, begin recording uh, in the spring of 89. They spend a couple of weeks, and it is essentially a party. All three of them have given interviews, plus Paul, saying, uh, you know, they would walk in each day with a stack of albums under their arms. Mm -hmm. These were not albums they went out and crate dug for. These were albums their parents owned, (laughs) right? Right. Here's Trugoy back in 1989 talking about the different styles of music they each grew up listening to. My background influence was my parents listened to a lot of uh, old western, some jazz, some reggae. May's parents listened to a lot of calypso and um, a lot of R&B, and um, Pa's parents listened to a lot of uh, jazz. And some of them, uh, you know, look at the list. Otis Redding, The Barkays, Steely Dan's, Asia, Johnny Cash, the title, Three mm. Feet High and Rising, comes from one of the guys found Dad had an album by Johnny Cash, Five Feet High and Rising. They said, oh, well, mm-hmm. there's three of us. Let's take that. Cows and water up past her knees, three feet high and rising. How high's the water, Mama? Four feet high and rising. How high's the water, Hole and Oates, Liberace, Billy Joel, Kraftwerk, uh, a snippet of uh, New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia reading the comics, as he famously did over the radio, <laughs> and a recording of, of, of How to Speak French. Mm-hmm. Right? All of this and more, so much more, winds up on Three Feet High and Rising. And then uh, they come up with this thematic link. Which I'll let you take over. Because, you know, right now, I think the idea of skits in hip-hop, we have long gotten sick of them. Right. But nobody had done it. Well, it starts here, you know. And and, and it was Prince Paul's idea to, to, you know, put together these little interstitial uh, pieces into this recording of these wildly diverse uh, pieces of music. You know, let's let's do a game show, boys. Hey, all you kids out there. Welcome to Three Feet High and Rising. I'm going to ask an amount of four questions, and you'll try to answer them correctly. Now you out there in the audience can answer along with them. How many feathers are on a Purdue chicken? How many fibers are intertwined in a shredded wheat biscuit? What does touche et lele poo mean? How many times did the Batmobile catch a flat? Now that we know the questions, we'll let the contestants think them over, and we'll return right after these messages. How many flat tires yeah. did the Batmobile get? <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, they're just goofing around. You get the sense of friends goofing around right. for the mic. You know, like when kids uh, first get a microphone. That's the story right. of everybody here in public radio. They first get a microphone and a recorder, and they make their own radio plays. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounds like De La Soul. You know, barely out of high school, they're all doing They needed to separate themselves. They, they, they understood that there was so much great stuff already happening out there that it was pointless to make another hip-hop record that sounded 
like anything else that was already out there because there was classics coming out almost every month, it seemed like, yeah. at that time. So they went far afield, and, and, and Prince Paul goes, I can work with these guys. I mean, he was the most experienced of the group. He recognized somebody that had been was creating their own lane. As soon as he heard that first demo for Plug Tunin, he was like, these guys are onto something different. I want to work with them. You know, and Trugoy, on that uh, particular track, talks about the first time around, you didn't quite understand our new style of speak. The first time around, you didn't quite understand our new style of speak. Don't worry. We can fix that right now. So why don't you all just grab your bag. Come on board and hoist the anchor. We'll be off. They were self-consciously coming up with a new language. I mean, they were they were quoting their version of street slang on yeah. this record. They were coming up with their own phrases, their own way of turning uh, words around. Uh, so it was it was a, a a very self-conscious effort to make an artful album that was different than everything else out out there. You know, you think about the way that Plug Tunin was put together from a standpoint of the recording. You know, they went deep. You know, that, that, that there's a doo-wop record that very few people knew about as sort of a basis for that record. There was this sort of chaotic, playful, abstract, subversive humor to the whole thing. Let's talk about some of the standout tracks on Three Feet High and Rising. What to do when sucker lunatics start digging and chewing? They don't know that the soul don't go for that potholes in my lawn, and that goes for my the, the one of the early tracks, potholes in my lawn. Think about yeah, that. Yeah, the yeah. surrealism of that image. You're in the concrete jungle. There are no lawns, only potholes, you know? This is what they're writing about. And there's a yodeling loop in the middle of that there song, apropos loop. of nothing other than the fact that it's just funny. It's surreal. Which leaves my lawn with lawn shoe. I think I better plant traces to give clues. Or better yet, call 911. And when they get here, I inform them I'm the plug one of the plug chair and let them realize the reason for concern of the soul. Because we've come down with a case of potholes. The track was about the jealousy of the neighbors. These guys were doing something. And their uh, their success spawned jealousy. So this is a battle rhyme, but it's a battle rhyme that didn't sound like anybody else's battle rhyme at the time. Look, totally I, original. I think the key to understanding De La Soul is they were not afraid to be nerds. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd have to wait another 30 years for somebody like Lupe Fiasco to come forward or very early Kanye West to take pride in their nerddom yeah. and to not be posing. De La Soul got a lot of crap for it right from the beginning from uh, towering figures like KRS-One. Mm-hmm. of Boogie Down Productions. There was a connection there with Stetsasonic. Uh, you know, what is this hippie crap? Uh, the Daisy Age right. is what De La Soul proclaimed. The inner sound, y'all, mm-hmm. right? Um, but they were kids, Greg. What about the magic number? You know, they grew up with a bowl of sugary cereal in front of the television <laughs> watching Schoolhouse Rocks. Right. And, you know, three is a magic number is one of the best of the mathematic arithmetic mm-hmm. uh, Schoolhouse Rock songs. Man and a woman had a little baby. Yes, they did. They had three in the family. 
And they're happily sampling it. I don't think they're doing it as shtick. I think they're doing it as this is where we come from. Yeah, this, this is who is, we are. This is who we are. Difficult preaching is posthumous pleasure. Pleasure in preaching starts in the heart. Something that stimulates the music in a measure. Measure in the music, racing three parts. Casually see, but don't do like the soul. Cause seeing and doing are actions for monkeys. Doing hip hop hustle, no rock and roll. Unless your name's Bruce. You know, even the Jennifer taught me is sort of a, it's built on this whole cliche, you know, the schoolboy crush and I'm gonna seduce the prettiest girl in the school. Oh, breakfast, broken fast. She was in my English class. Rock my boat, Jennifer. Oh, Jenny lost her favorite penny, so I gave her a dollar. She kissed me and I hollered. But he's not cool because Jennifer, no. at, at the end of the interlude, moves on. She's dumped this guy already, realized he's not cool enough for me, and they're just kind of like, okay, you know. Yeah, right, right. I had my moment in the sun, and now it's over. My 15 minutes of fame are up. Jennifer doesn't want me anymore. And then there's that ridiculous, but nonetheless, apropos Chopsticks interlude, the Liberace Chopstick yeah, interlude yeah. in the middle of that song, you know, that just kind of breaks everything up. And you yeah. go, what? Where did that come from? Listen. Hey, look at little Darwin. Look at him go. Look at him go. At the same time, though, it needs to be pointed out that these guys were smart. Um, it oh, wasn't yeah. just all jokes. It wasn't all about... Let's talk about our, 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 our misadventures as high school nerds. Uh, when, you, when you think about a track like Tread Water, what a, just, just look at the lyric sheet alone. You don't even need music to sort of get the idea that this is an elaborate fable they are creating here. It's, it's, it's not a tossed-off piece of work. It's really a, a fable about ecological disaster. I was walking on the water when I saw a crocodile. Daisies in his hat, so I stopped him for a while. He delivered me a message, a massage to soothe my stage. What it was was more than plug a dosage, more than daisy You've got this whole idea of a talking fish, you know, in the bathtub. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got the talking crocodile with daisies in his hat on Dove's journey across the river. Um, and, and the monkey, who's talking at the end of the record, is, is a fan, saying, you know, you've uplifted me with this record. And he advises Postanus to stay the course. Don't, don't be swayed by what people say you are. Be who you are. It was almost like they were advising themselves that, you know, people are going to misinterpret this hippie thing, this daisy age thing, and they're going to cast us as a bunch of uh, softies and outsiders and people who don't know what they're doing uh, that don't belong in hip-hop. And he says, you know what? Don't listen to them. Be, be who you are. Well, that's exactly what happens. Uh, I wanted to mention one more song before we get to the sad uh, denouement of mm. this record. Um, you know, they sample Hall & Oates's I Can't Go For That. Yeah. And in De La Soul's uh, hands, it becomes uh, Say No Go. the 
so bear my witness. Blind like birds of a feather, dressed like leather. You don't want to wear it. Which is anti-drug, mm-hmm. right? One of the least cool things that's happening in hip-hop at that time. We have not yet, or we're just about to have, the explosion of West Coast gangster rap. Mm-hmm. You know, innumerable tales about drug dealing. We've had some of that at that point in New York. You know, it's going to become the endless trope in hip-hop forever. After a short break, we'll dig into the story of the breakout hit from Three Feet High and Rising, Me, Myself, and I. We'll also explore how the album's 200 samples set the stage for a decades-long legal battle that impacted the sound of hip-hop for years to come. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis. This week we're digging into the history of Three Feet High and Rising, the classic 1989 album by hip-hop trio De La Soul. The breakout hit from that album was Me, Myself, and I, a song built on six samples. It's also a song that almost didn't happen. They'd finished the album, they turned it into Tommy Boy, and Tommy Boy does the record company cliche, we don't hear a single, Right. give us something we can play on radio. They go back in the studio, the principal takes his parliament sample, not just knee deep. Mm-hmm. Builds this incredible track uh, underneath me, myself, and I. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Tell me, mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my daylight clothes or is it just my daylight song? What I do ain't make believe. People say I sit and travel. When it comes to being daylight, it's just me, myself, and I. They talk about this idea of being played by the label yeah. and being played by, you know, being pigeonholed because of the way a particular record sounds. Style is surely our own thing, not the false disguise of showbiz. My name happens to be True Goy the Dove. We don't dress with the gold chains and the um, glasses and the Kango hats and all that stuff, the sneakers. We don't do all of that. We just, you know, choose to be ourselves. It's just me, myself, and I. We, we now see the world and the record companies for what they are. Right. We're moving on. We're and, moving and that on. sort of sets up the stage for the next record, which was a, a complete 180. They say it right in that track. Yeah. That song alone has six samples. It's got Not Just Knee Deep by Funkadelic. It's got Funky Worm by the Ohio Players. Say it now. Say it now. Me and the Ohio Players gonna tell you about a worm. Rapper Dapper Snapper by Edwin Bird Song. 
Gonna Make You Mine by Loose Ends. And the original human beatbox by Dougie Fresh. Right. right? Uh, all of that in one song. Over 200 samples on this record. Uh, the problem is only 60 were cleared. What does that mean? Um, this was new turf at this point. The rules for hip-hop and for sampling were being written. De La Soul have subsequently said in many interviews, and I do not believe it's uh, justification after the fact, that they just assumed the record company was going to handle this. Right. And the record company, <laughs> Tommy Boy, did handle some of it. But they missed quite a few, including a, uh, a, a little snippet of a song, You Showed Me, by The Turtles. À midi. Quelle heure est-il Il est midi. C'est l'heure de déjeuner. Qu'est-ce qu'il y a à manger Des saucisses. Sans doute. I think the Turtles were one of the mediocre wannabe Beatles kind of bands of the mid-60s. De La Soul took 12 seconds of it and looped it for a 66-second track under the the How to Speak French uh, recording, right? You know, and the Turtles sued, and sued with a vehemence you know, I think Mm. unwarranted. They were looking for two and a half million dollars for this 12 seconds of sound. You got to remember, these weren't just uh, clueless uh, white guy wannabe Beatles. Uh, Howard Kalin and Mark Volman, the leaders of the Turtles, went on to play for years with Frank Zappa. Yeah. You think if anybody would have appreciated freakiness, mm-hmm. it would have been Kalin right. and Volman. Anyway, you know, what's more, Zappa would include uh, bits of Edgar Varese mm-hmm. in his music, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. he's, he's quoting everything from uh, Schoenberg mm-hmm. to Louis Louis. You know, I, I never understood that. Uh, you know, it effectively has been a horrible legacy for this record ever since. The reason it's not streaming uh, or downloadable uh, to purchase and only remains uh, available on a CD uh, is, uh, you know, the, the contract was also very narrow-minded. You and I have written books, mm. right? Um, our book contracts say, you know, paper rights, audio rights, uh you know, Kindle rights, and any form Format. that may ever be invited, yeah. invented, right? You know, someday people are going to have a USB port in their neck, and they'll just, right. you know, stick that in. You know, how Tommy Boy did not do that. And then Tommy Boy is later uh, consumed, subsumed by Warner Brothers Records. Mm-hmm. None of these companies have ever wanted to go back and do the hassle of paying for right. these samples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, look, for shame on the artists, really, you know, uh, like the Turtles, for making such a big stink, you know, uh, like, why can't they take a cut? It's this kind of completely myopic, legalistic viewpoint of what sampling is. Everybody says it's stealing. Well, you know, if you borrow a blues riff. You know, there's one blues song, right? Right. And eight, eight million blues men made a variation on that one blues song. And nobody sued them. 
Uh, you know, you go through the history of pop music, everyone borrows or steals from somebody else. Uh, sampling is just a way of recontextualizing the past and making it relevant for a new piece of music. You know, when you think about an artist like, and, and Prince Paul is an artist in the way he Absolutely. used these samples, uh, it's ridiculous to think that somebody would sue them for millions of dollars for appropriating a few seconds of a record that no one has thought about for three decades. And the group had its own philosophy on what it was doing with the samples. Here's the album's producer, Prince Paul, followed by De La Soul's Trugoy the Dove and Mace talking about the art of sampling in 1989. If you have a creative mind, you can basically use anything. For example, I could take a record such as a basic Disneyland Mickey Mouse record, for example. Now, people may not believe it, but if you look through these old records, you could find things like drum beats on them. It's hard to believe, though. When we sample, we don't just, you know, just sample it and just lay it and loop it. We can turn the backwards, I mean, turn the backwards, make the end, the beginning, chop it up and make it sound like a totally new, different instrument being played. It's not actually stealing. It's like bringing back the old, old songs, making the old songs new again, making people like it, you know, even more. You know, you listen to the De La Soul 66 seconds, yeah. you know, and it's like it's it's unrecognizable. The other big case was Biz Markie got sued by Gilbert O'Sullivan right. for sampling similarly a couple of seconds of Alone Again Naturally. When a little while from now, if I'm not feeling any less sound. I was on my way to 125th. I saw this deaf bench, yo, that's my man Cliff. As I flagged him down, he pulled to the side. At this moment, I had to swallow my pride. The judge was so clueless, not only about this nascent, burgeoning hip-hop culture. There's a wonderful piece that Robert Criscow has written about that trial. Look it up online. The judge had to ask several times for the court to define for him what R&B was. Right. He didn't understand. So you have this English wannabe, you know, blue-eyed soul singer has this hit. The difference was Bismarcky knew it had to be cleared, and Gilbert O'Sullivan had denied permission, mm -hmm. and he went ahead and did it anyway. Right. You know, but De La Soul honestly thought they'd been cleared, you know, that that, that, that somebody at the company store was yeah. taking care of them. And I, I just think it's one of the greatest tragedies in the history of music that uh, everybody can't immediately rush to Spotify and listen to this album on repeat for the next three weeks. Well, it's important to note that at the in the time that there was still a gray area here about what how, how to use sampling and how uh, what the licensing rules really were. Because anybody could make up any number they want and say, okay, I'll, I'll get, let you use four seconds of my record, but you have to pay X amount of dollars. And they could just make up a figure. Yeah. Uh, or, or not, or not care. And there, there was sort of this gray, gray area for that approach to making hip-hop records at the time. I mean, the, the licensing rules uh, are, are so stringent. Uh, there has been precedent set in these court proceedings that to make a record like this now would be practically impossible. Unfortunately, sample clearance complications aren't the only thing keeping three feet high and rising off of your streaming playlists. 
further complicating things, Greg, besides the uh, clearance of all these samples, is the fact that CEO and founder of Tommy Boy Records, Tom Silverman, was trying to shove down De La Soul's throats uh, for their first six albums, a 90-10 split of the profits if uh, those records were streamed. Mm-hmm. 90-10. Yeah. There are no manufacturing costs for a stream. Why should the record company get 90%? I suppose a portion of that would have to go to sample clearance. Uh, but De La Soul has dug their feet in, and mm-hmm. good for them, uh, except bad for listeners, right? It is, I think, one of the holy grails of great digging now, because it does sound better on vinyl. Yeah. Oh, my God, it does, right? Or even CD digging. You know, CDs mm-hmm. now, you can be buying for 10 cents. In a way, it became a challenge to the artists who followed, because I think De La Soul's legacy is alive and well. Yeah. I hear it in uh, in artists like uh, the Social Experiment, Chance the Rapper's backing group, you know? Oh, yeah. Nate, Nate Fox and Nico Siegel. Don't you look up to me. Don't trust a word I say. Don't you end up like me if you learn one thing today. I hear it uh, certainly in a lot of what Common went on to do, that a one, wonderful uh, Electric Circus record. The lives are affected, connect the control with me in your basement, your mama got blow. I provide the vibe to keep the strippers on pose. Do me the black spirit, the glorious tone. I'm a school, this old bowl, so I rock gold and platinum. Some cats I hold no sarcastic with them. On streets I rap with them, in ghettos I blast with them. Mash with them at the party and all. Be the universal language that's embodying all. With the Billy Holiday, Bob Molly and y'all. Y'all feel most high when I. Wherever there's ambition, Frank Ocean, you know, I've heard mm-hmm. it. Yeah. The best song wasn't the single, but you weren't either. Living in Ladera Heights, the Black Beverly Hills, domesticated paradise, palm trees and pools. The water's blue, swallow the pill, keeping it surreal. Whatever you like. Refusing to color in the lines and wanting to reach out far and wide. But what they've had to do is partner with musicians. Right. right? What you can do is play a riff. Right. You know, if you are recording a riff instead of sampling a riff. I think or in effect, create your own sample on a keyboard right, or a synthesizer right, or whatever right, and then right. and then sample that, you know, right. which is still a way of doing it, you know. But, I, you know, we, we should explain for listeners because I think still a lot of people do not understand. Over 200 samples on this record, a similar number, even I, th- I believe even more astronomical on It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us yeah. Back by Public Enemy, uh, similar on Paul's Boutique, right? I'm sorry. We can give you those couple of hundred records and a sampler yeah. and show you how to use it, you are not going to accomplish what the Bomb Squad or Prince Paul did or the Dust Brothers with the... Well, it, you know, it so is a true... so dense. It's an art. It's a true talent. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. think people understand. You know, people think sampling and they think about what, you know, that, that Puff Daddy song where he steals half the Sting song. Yeah. That's not what these artists were doing. I also think we have here the roots of uh, whatever you want to call it, indie rap. Certainly part of the emerging uh, subculture uh, in in New York of the Native Tongues movement. You know, the Tribe Called Quest. (laughs) 
Jungle Brothers, Queen Latifah, Black Sheep. MC Light. Adela Soul was right in the middle of that. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about the idea that rap, now rap, you didn't have to be hard or nasty, you know, uh, or street to connect. You could be positive, smart, abstract, nerdy, funny. Um, you know, you could be yourself. You could be anything you wanted to be, uh, as long as you were creative. So you get Mos Def, you get Talib Kweli. You got Common. You get, you know, the whole Chicago sound from Chance the Rapper back to Lupe Fiasco. So he was banished to the park, started in the morning, one stopped after dark. Yeah, when they said it's getting late in here. So I'm sorry, young man, there's no skating here. So we kick. Yeah. You know, uh, think about Kanye, you know, the way he used sampling, the way he was able to be himself on his early records. They take me to the back and pat me. Asking me about some khakis, but let some black people walk in. I bet you they show off they token blackie. Oh, not enough, Kanye. Let's put them all in the front of the stove. Some on break next to the no smoking sign. With a- you think about the Def Chucks record label under oh, yeah. LP. Again, those are the children of uh, Three Feet High and Rising, and it goes on and on. Held tight and kiss, but things like this don't happen to dudes like me because I'm more cold play than I am iced tea. They say that good girls look bad guys, and that might be, but a bad girl with a good guy that's unlike. Now we want to hear from you. Where do you hear the legacy of Della Soul today? Let us know. Call our hotline at 888 859 1800. When we come back, we review I Am Easy to Find, the latest from the National, and Jim drops a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. Jim, what do you got for us? Greg, I, I had so much fun, don't know about you, doing the Paisley Underground genre yeah. dissection that I'm going to uh, do one band we only mentioned briefly in passing, a cornerstone band from that movement as well as one of the godfathers of alternative country. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Island, you should try to get some sun. You remind me of everyone Rylan, did you break your mother's heart? Every time you tried to play your part Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRegatis. That's a track from the eighth studio album from the national I Am Easy to Find. The track is called Rylan. Uh, a track they started to perform on the road a couple of years ago and has now surfaced on this new studio album. The band formed 20 years ago, Jim, in Cincinnati, has since moved to New York. It got signed to the uh, Beggar's Banquet Records label in the early 2000s after putting out a couple of indie releases. Its breakthrough came in 2005, Alligator. Subsequent albums continued to do better and better. The, the band started playing in front of bigger audiences 
with each album cycle. The 2017 album, Sleep Well Beast, actually won a Grammy Award for Best Alternative Music Album, and the band toured extensively behind that record with the notion that they were going to take some time off. Instead, this film director, uh, Mike Mills, uh, not the Mike Mills from R.E.M., by the way, but a director who's done movies like uh, 20th Century Women, started communicating with Matt Berninger, the lead vocalist in The National, and uh, wanted to collaborate and actually ended up doing a 24-minute film based on the Nationals' music. In turn, Berninger said, hey, come and work with us on this new album. We feel this new energy coming across from what you're doing. Uh, let's, let's collaborate and make a record. So they brought in Mike Mills as the co-producer. We're going to talk about the eighth National album in a second. I am easy to find, but here's a track from it first. You had your soul on Sound Opinions. I have owed it to my heart Every word I've said You have no idea How hard I died when you left If I yield to my trances Will I get up close again? That is a little bit of You Had Your Soul by The National from the new album, I Am Easy to Find. Um, Greg, (laughs) I hate this album with a deep and abiding hatred that I have not felt for a very long time. I, I, I hated it so much. It's one of those rare records that prompted me to go back and reevaluate the previous four national records we had reviewed on Sound Opinions, uh, all of which I gave a, a really enthusiastic burn it, or back when we had the rating system, uh, you know, mm. unapologetic buy it. In fact, in 2017, when Sleep Well Beast came out, I was applauding the move toward Radiohead electronic uh, mm-hmm. uh, backing tracks, a new depth to accompany what has always been the band's signature, Matt Berninger's uh, poetic literary lyrics. What is wrong with this record? Number one, it's electronic in all the wrong ways, as opposed to the last record. Number two, it's lousy with choirs. There are, are many guest female vocalists here, including the great Sharon Van Etten. There's the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. They seem sort of tossed in randomly and haphazardly. Mm. Berninger's often compared to Leonard Cohen, both as a lyricist and as kind of, uh, you know, the downtrodden uh, vocalist, the somber vocalist, right? You know, this is like those lousy Cohen records where it sounded like it was produced by some guy high on coke, you know, from the 70s disco scene who'd never heard Leonard Cohen before. I, I don't understand this record at all, and and it's making me reconsider everything I think I thought I knew about the national. 
Yeah, Jim, this is a, a disappointing record for me as well, uh, especially after seeing them on their 2017 tour. They had so much energy, so much power. I, I thought they'd never sounded better. This record sounds kind of tired to me. Uh, yeah. Berninger in particular. You know, the one thing I always liked about Berninger was this sort of Jekyll and Hyde personality. I sing in this low brooding voice because I, there's a seething rage yeah. right <laughs> under the surface. And when it comes out, there will gonna, there's going to be hell to pay. And their songs inevitably would, would, would come to these kind of crescendos where you would like, get this really kind of scarifying vibe. You know, this brooding guy is just, you know, barely containing himself. There's none of that here. There's no breakthrough here. It just sounds kind of tired. The female vocalists seem to be brought in uh, primarily as a foil. The whole idea that, hey, we're a, we're a co- collective, we're a collaborative entity rather than just a band. But which you, to you me don't... sounds like, you know what, you're a pretty good band. Right. This seems like an excuse to make a sort of a mediocre album that almost sounds like a remix album. But I see, I, I see how this could have worked. Remember when Nick Cave yeah. did the duet with Kylie Minogue? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. These are two things that shouldn't have gone together, right? Uh, but they did. And yet, and yet this is nowhere near like that. I think the women actually walk away with this record. I mean, the best moments on the record belong to uh, Gail Ann Dorsey. You heard yeah. her, some of her voice on that You Had Your Soul song. There's a couple other ones where she really shines. She seems like the beacon of, of hope in this record that seems like a complete downer uh, otherwise. Uh, the intimacy becomes rather wearying. I think the fact that it's 64 minutes long mm-hmm. and stays in that one very sad, brooding, intimate, we're having this conversation, male and female, yin and yang, uh, you know, throughout the entire record, that never really kind it's of just breaks not an the mold. Conversation, it never, though. it never goes, <laughs> it never goes anywhere. It is the most radical album of their career in that they have sort of broken the mold of what The National is, and it's also the most disappointing. It's a failed experiment. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to go to the Desert Island, pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox, and play a track we cannot live without. Jim, it's your turn this week. Greg, uh, we had so much fun doing the uh, psychedelic Paisley Underground genre dissection last week. Uh, I wanted to reprise it a bit with another band uh, that I loved. Now, they were part of that movement, uh, but also part of something else, a new sound, a borning. The Longriders came together like all those groups we talked about last week, the Bangles, the Three O'Clock, the Rain Parade, uh, you know, in the early 80s, around two key members, Sid Griffin, who'd been a rock critic like Steve Wynn of the Dream Syndicate and Stephen McCarthy. Both great singers, songwriters, um, enamored uh, hugely 
of the psychedelic era birds and the next phase of the birds, Graham Parsons, sweetheart of the rodeo. The birds go country. Uh, you know, Gene Clark, that whole sound. I remember seeing uh, the Long Riders when all they had was an EP out, 10560, uh, released in 1983. They blew my mind mm-hmm. because I believe it was Granada we had just invaded. And oh, they yeah. sang this song that I'd never heard before. I'm younger than you. Masters of War. Yeah. <laughs> I heard of and that I one. Like, I love this band. Yeah. I, you know, I, I really think they're underrated as one of these bands that, that without whom there would have been no Uncle Tupelo, would have been no, uh, you know, decades worth of alternative country, no bloodshot record, that whole genre, right? These guys were there in 83 and 84. Um, and, you know, it was as as poignant lyrically as musically. I want to play a song from State of Our Union, their 1985 album, which I think sounds like it could have been written yesterday. It's called Looking for Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark, the two explorers who discovered there was a West Coast to this game. Mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson sends them out, says, figure out how to get from here mm-hmm. on the East Coast, you know, to, to whatever's out there in the West. We don't know, right? From With help from Native Americans, with incredible courage and uh, 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 fortitude, they cross the country. They tell us what America is about, right? Geographically mm-hmm. and what this place is. Here's the long riders singing in, in the height of the Reagan era. I thought I saw some diplomat hawking secret plans in the park. I thought I saw my president walking through Harlem late after dark. In a world of love where they burn like Nero, you write them a check and then you add a zero. Mm-hmm. Looking for Lewis and Clark. There's also humor in here too right. because he imagines himself um, going to heaven and meeting Tim Hart and saying, tell tell Graham Parsons about my band, the Long Riders. <laughs> right? It's, uh, you know, they, they were an incredible band live, uh, not always super successful on record, but, you know, they're back together. There is a new Long Riders album, Psychedelic Country Soul, just came out. They are touring the country. If you never got to see them in the day, uh, go see them for sure. And the new album, I think, is really strong. Here's one from back in 1985, looking for Lewis and Clark by the Long Riders on Sound Opinion. That is The Long Riders looking for Lewis and Clark. New albums out. They're out on tour. Greg, what's on the show next week? 
Next week, Jim, it's time to dig up some more buried treasures. We love this uh, feature that we do every once yes. in a while on the show. Uh, records that are flying underneath the mainstream radar that we think you need to hear. You can download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such things. Sound Opinions was produced by Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. You're looking for Lewis and Clark. We're looking for Brendan Matisak. I don't know. He's climbing <laughs> a mountain or something. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Brad calling from Washington, D.C. Just listened to your reunion show and wanted to reflect on probably the coolest reunion I ever got to see, which was my sophomore year of college in St. Louis, driving a couple hours saying, to hell with finals, we should go see the Big Star reunion. two of the members, but they got together with a couple members from the Posies, reunited at a University of Missouri spring fling, and a few hundred people gathered and uh, were blown away by what then became a a sort of mini reunion that Alex and Jody had for a couple years. It was a pretty special moment that became a, a, a CD that was released a couple years later, and the one band that I would love to see reunite uh, was actually at that show, which is Uncle Tupelo. All members still going strong. There's not a lot of love lost between them, but uh, it would be pretty incredible to see those uh, three original members get together at least one more time. Thanks for a great show, as always, and uh, keep it up. You asked about fans. I'd like to see a reunion of the original members. XTC, the uh, kind of the second phase with Colin Moulding, Andy Partridge, Dave Garrett, Gregory, and Terry Chambers. Uh, I saw them once, and I'd love to see that lineup again. Also, the Oak Harris. I never saw them when they were touring, and uh, they were such an awesome band. That's it. Thanks. Keep up the great work. Bye. My name is Keith, and I'm calling from Carver, North Carolina. And a band that I would pay crazy amounts of money to see get back together is a band called Jellyfish. And they were from the early 90s in San Francisco. They were amazing, uh, psychedelic pop, just the Queen, Beatles influence, uh, super harmonies. They recreated their stuff perfectly. Like, it was just beautiful the way that they were able to do the harmonies live. And um, they just put out two albums and, and, and quit. And I would go nuts if they got to, together again. But Spilt Milk, their second album, a masterpiece, but um, just a lot of their stuff is really amazing. 
All right. Thanks. Peace. Hi, guys. This is John. I'm a listener in Alameda, but I grew up in Southern California in Orange County, and I just heard the Paisley Underground show, and it took me straight back to high school. I first learned about Dream Syndicate from reading Robert Hilburn in the L.A. Times, and uh, when he described the band and their music, I had to go out and get Days of Rump Wines and Roses immediately. So thanks very much, and I'll keep listening. Bye. Hi, fellas. This is Peter calling from El Cerrito, California. I just, uh, actually, I had to stop. I was listening to your show on the Paisley Underground, and uh, I just heard Jim DeRogatis make a very strange statement, and um, I'm very confused. Um, Davis, California, is not a suburb of Los Angeles. If Davis, California, is a suburb of L.A., then uh, I guess you might say oh, Morgantown, Virginia, is a suburb of Chicago. They're like 400 miles apart, maybe more. Davis, California, I was kind of flabbergasted. Um, yeah. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.